Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and joining me as always is my old friend, co-host, and platonic life mate. We're recording this on a Sunday afternoon, so I expect he's spent the morning, as he always does, interacting with the non-human entities that congregate in his backyard, basking in the ultraviolet radiation of an off-world source, and refreshing himself on a heady mixture of carbonic acid and dihydrogen monoxide. It's Mr. Stephen James Buckley. (laughs) Hello. Yeah, do you know, I I did actually spend the morning... um putting up a trellis in my backyard to attract winged well no to to support a bush which attracts non-human entities of the winged kind uh, which you know so so part of that is true um the trellis i did not put up alone it was uh i, I had help from friend of the show adam so shout out to adam thank you for that uh, <laughs> woodsman skills so just before we start yeah it's weird recording in the afternoon isn't it it is weird we've recorded first thing in the morning almost everything we've done we've recorded at night apart from that one with alan greenfield which we recorded first thing in the morning um that was nice because i could have coffee then if i have coffee after lunchtime i'd just go insane yeah um so it's like like the gremlins thing um okay so our guest today is a purveyor of all things weird uh, he's an author, a blogger, uh, he's a writer, having written for Paranormality Magazine, High Strangers Magazine, um, and together with SJ Schick, he co-hosts the Holy Donut Revival Hour, which is an irreverent podcast full with weirdness and nonsense. They recently did a, a fantastic interview with one of our favourites, Alan Greenfield, who we just mentioned, um, and he's a wicked follow on Twitter. And he's a stalwart of the occult podcast scene, having appeared on some of our favourites, uh, such as Some Other Sphere, Strange Familiars, Project Archivist, Our Strange Skies, and Where Did the Road Go? And now finally we've bagged him seemingly without duress for an appearance on vase it's ap strange hey 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 how are you doing great great well thanks very much for for joining us today um i wanted to start off talking about something it's on your website it's titled uh the story of your experience with the phenomenon that you've told way too many times on podcasts um i think we're to tell it again (laughs) <laughs> well, I think that some podcasts would see that as a friendly warning not to ask. Um, but um, I wanted to talk start there because your first experience with the phenomena was incredibly similar to mine. So I will summarize um, your first experience and okay. let me know if you get it wrong. Because it was basically when you were a kid in your bunk beds, you saw two... Uh, strange entities that were kind of orb-like, but you kind of saw them as Mickey Mouse hand gloves that beckoned to you and gave you some information. Um, I think you saw a McDonald's with party balloons that later became some, uh, and the McDonald's that was there uh, didn't exist at the time, but was later built. And you did actually have birthday parties there with your brother later on in life. Yeah. Um, I know I murdered that story, but people can read that on your website where you write very eloquently. But I've told this story on our podcast before. Um, I My first experience with the phenomenon was also when I was a very, very young kid in bunk bed, I woke up in the night and saw it was actually three entities at the end of my bed and mm. uh, also glowing. And I also saw them. I didn't see them as Mickey Mouse hands, but I saw them as Monster Munch monsters who are like the corporate mascots of the Monster Munch brand, which are like, they're kind of like uh, crisps, but uh, I think you call them chips. You know, like well, they're just, technically, they're more of a corn snack, I'd well, say. Yeah, kind of puffed, yeah, puffed yeah. corn snack they, they, thing. They fit in the, in the crisp sphere, but <laughs> if we're being specific, they're not really a chip or crisp, they're more of a they're corn They're kind of like snack. a Cheeto, maybe. 
very or, similar, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yes. similar, similar sort of structure. Yeah, yeah. Orange yeah. starchy, kind of puffy stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know the kind. So that was weird because you go a little bit on your website into how you wondered now as an adult kind of what these entities were, which I've always wondered as well, because what I saw then, it's easy for people to dismiss that sort of thing as a dream that a kid has. But the quality of my experience was extremely vivid and lifelike in that they didn't disappear when I woke up. They stuck around for a while and I was definitely awake. Um, I, I, I wondered, like, have you managed to make any sense out of that experience as an adult? Um, did they speak to you in yours? They didn't, no. Um, they they danced uh, weirdly. Like, they kind of did a dance. Huh. Wow. Yeah, for me, like, the only reason the Mickey Mouse gloves came up, I try to elucidate this in my post because it always gets confused, but um, yeah. just the presence of two. Like, the fact that there were two, and Mickey Mouse has those white gloves. That was the immediate association my mind made. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but it also had the playful feeling of a Mickey Mouse, you know, to a, yeah. to a small one, which I imagine the crisp mascots probably did for you. That would be, it was kind of a playful feeling, right? Yeah, it was playful, but it was also terrifying. Like oh, I did call for my mom okay. in the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, um, yeah, prior to that little premonition, I I had an out of body experience. So that's kind of that's what precipitated that. When for me they left and went out the window and I just followed with them. And I could wow. see my physical body falling back onto the That's one of the clearest memories I have is of actually seeing myself as a child like basically opening my mouth into like a yawn and just dropping back onto the pillow and falling asleep before I was zipped backwards out the window. Wow. So, um, so yeah, for me, the premonition part of it was the most important part. And that struck me as having something to do with time travel or with the illusion of time. Yeah. As we understand it as, as physical beings moving through a material world. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I've never really taken time on its face the way that it's explained. Um, as a relatively, at a relatively young age, I was trying to wrap my mind around like Einstein and what I could about like quantum mechanics and stuff. Yeah. Like, I remember my dad trying to sit me down and, and talk about like the birds and the bees when I was around that age. And I was, I was anxious and it's not a comfortable experience when you're, when, when you're having that <laughs> with your old man for the first time. And I kind of wanted to change the subject. So I started talking about how, um, uh, time really operates as like block time and it's this matrix of different realities and probabilities that could happen in different ways. <laughs> it was just like, I don't think, I don't think that's something you have to worry about right now. <laughs> he was wrong. Priorities. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, ever since a little kid, I've always been fascinated with, with time travel as a uh, sci-fi concept. Um, yeah. The time machine by HG Wells both the movie and the book were huge for me when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. The old, and, the old version of the movie, I guess. Yeah. The classic one. I think. I think it yeah, came I, love that movie. I love that movie. Oh, that movie is gorgeous. It's just great. Yeah. Um, but, um, and it has the same guy, I think from the birds in it, the same actor. Oh, is it? I didn't realize that. I That's another great movie. Yeah. The birds also had a profound effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, um, so but do, do I mean, think, even 
even from a young age, I just kind of had this idea in my head that time isn't linear. We, we, we experience time in a linear fashion, but it isn't exactly linear. So, um, things like premonitions or, uh, one skill that I always wished I had, but I don't think I have is, um, uh, uh, psychometry being able to touch something and know it's full history. Oh yeah. Because I think that all of this is very possible. I think time is already all happening now. Everything yeah, that is. No, I'm completely convinced of that. And I've, yeah. I've, I mean, it makes sense in a sort of scientific way, you know, when you look at things like time loops with Eric Wargo and that sort of thing. But it also, you know, in experiences I've had through things like journeying, um, you know, in shamanic practice, I've also had sort of information transferred to me about um, time just all happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and and uh, you know, we sort of experience part of it in in a strange sort of way. Um, do you think that your experience at that age? How old were you at that time? That's one of the unknowns about the story because I always assumed I was probably around four or five. Yeah, uh, my brother's two years younger to, than me, and he was on the bottom bunk, so I figured he couldn't have been a baby. You know, um, but. Then I later learned that my brother refused to sleep in a crib at a very young age, so they moved him to a bed like earlier than you would have. So uh, somewhere okay. between the age of like like two and five, somewhere in that range. So do you think that that experience was a kind of initiation in a way? Yeah. I mean, I think all of the phenomena is an initiation into like a mystery school. Uh, even if you just have a passing interest in it, <laughs> yeah. any interaction with it at all, even if you don't have a quote, um, uh, you know, you don't have a UFO sighting or see a full bodied apparition. You don't really need to, um, just the peripheral, the peripheral and tangential experience of reading about this stuff, studying it, having theories about it, um, and engaging with it on an honest level is going to initiate you. Do you think yeah. there's any significance to um and i guess this is a question for both of you really in terms of both of your um the the very young experiences that you mentioned involve um cartoons cartoon characters and and i guess symbols like you know uh mickey mouse mickey mouse gloves is is a pretty heavy symbolism um as are the monster munch monsters and it's sort of um, it's interesting that those are those are symbols that appeal to children and that are made mm. to appeal to children. Yeah. Um, I mean, and there must be a sort of um, you know the, the closest approximation that our minds because I mean yeah, that was definitely like, the impression I got from the the post that on, on AP's website is that um, you know obviously like and you've just said it wasn't like those apparitions were Mickey Mouse gloves. It's just that you're. Uh, child's brain made that connection right yeah it's the closest the the closest in proximity cultural reference i had at the moment you know which is really sort of significant considering the way that you know we always see that the phenomenon sort of wears the appearance of the time doesn't it you know yeah it does for sure but i think that the phenomena also operates on a sort of cartoon logic um being that it's removed from time and it uses the closest approximate symbols, there's kind of like a cartoon logic or a dream logic and a surrealist kind of um, uh, um, motivation, I guess, 
like the the way these things play out, the narratives of any kind of high strangeness story have almost like uh, cartoons. Cartoons lend themselves well to it because it's a plastic reality, and I think that's that's the um, that might maybe part of the point when you talk about it being an initiation is realizing realizing that the reality that we're familiar with and that we take for granted is more malleable and plastic than we give it credit for. And do you think that the experience that you had seeing the gloves was in some way responsible for your sort of, um, you know, your thoughts on time that you had from a very young age? You know, do you think that you, are you saying that you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have had that sort of perception of time? Because it is a fairly advanced perception of time for a young child, isn't it? Sort of. And do you think yeah. that that what gave you you know that, that your your experience with the gloves uh, gave you that ability almost to 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 think in that way? Well, right. I mean, way? part of the frustration with it is that the 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 entity or entities. This is where it becomes tricky to talk about. And I dig into this on the website. Where yeah, <laughs> if you find the post that was referenced, we'll link uh, to it on the show notes. Yeah, it's in the sidebar on the main page. If you go to my website and forget to check the show notes, but. The, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very careful in it to try to say, okay, entity or entities. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they really were two hands, then it would be a single entity, right? But it appeared to me as two, just two points of light, just kind of bouncing yeah. up and down. Um, but they spoke to me and asked me a series of questions, very mundane ones, like, who are you? Yeah. Where are you? Why are you here? Like this kind of thing, you know? Um, and then they left after I declared, well, this is my room. I live here. Like, this is mine. Yeah. And it seemed like declaring ownership over the space made them go away. Uh, and I was, had a moment of like anguish, just like frustration because I'm like, well, aren't we playing a game here? Don't I get to ask? <laughs> yeah. And that, that's what lingered for me. Like this unfairness, this lingered later where I thought, how come I didn't get to ask them anything? And I didn't get to ask them who they are. They didn't tell me who they are, you know. Mm. Um, and and uh, but I had that vision or out of body drop into the future where I saw this McDonald's and mm. I saw the party balloons and I saw all this other stuff. And it took years for that to play out. It was several years later they built a McDonald's and my mother set up a birthday party for me and my friends there, you know. Yeah. Um, and that that's the point where I was able to say, okay, well, here's something that proves that what happened that night wasn't just a dream, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've got two questions for you on this. One is probably easy to answer and one is probably more difficult. So the first one is just, has anything like that happened to you again since? With actually seeing entities and speaking yeah. to them? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't say so. I had a lot of poltergeist activity in my early teens um, preteens into teenage years and that kind of, um, got less frequent in my adulthood, but never completely went away. Uh, I've had more intentional visionary experiences where I've tried to talk to entities and things like that. Um, but I've never had something appear in front of me quite like that again. Yeah. And the second question I was going to ask is going into sort of one of my current obsession curiosities is and i was talking to buckley about this just yesterday um given how your experience was similar to mine and how we each saw 
we we each had the interpretation of a sort of corporate branding aimed at children um, came into our heads and you saw these entities and you wanted to engage with them and you wanted to play with them. Um, I've, I've been wondering a lot recently about what role uh, human beings have in that sort of um, interaction with the phenomenon, but whether human presence is completely essential to the phenomena at all. So would there be this phenomena if it wasn't for humans or, or are they somehow symbiotically linked, do you think? <laughs> it's tempting for me to think that the second you leave a room, it's suddenly a bunch of lights flying around and fairies popping up out of the floorboards and like Bigfoot dropping by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you think it's like the opposite way around that humans kind of yeah. get in the way of the phenomena. Yeah, they all hide every time you enter a room. <laughs> like, like, Toy like, like Toy Story. Yeah. <laughs> One of my parents used to tell me when I was a kid, there was a little man inside the fridge that would turn the light on every time you opened the door and run away. Yeah. Yeah, to see him. Well, um, are you telling me that there isn't? <laughs> it very well could be. You've been lying to me, Hein, all these years. <laughs> I didn't think you could handle it, Buckley. <laughs> um, no, I think it is intimately linked with consciousness. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, time is very important, uh, whatever that is. Uh, I, I think that there's these intersections of moments and our conscious perception of things that allow for things to manifest. I sometimes think that some of the phenomena is like a cleanup crew. And when you make ripples in uh, the time-space continuum, as it were, I, I never find adequate terms to use for this, so I just throw whatever mm. I can grab. But that, what, whatever whatever plastic um, 3D printer of reality that we have going on, sometimes it, a wrench gets thrown in the gears by a magical operation. And then there's these entities that have come as like a cleanup crew to repair it and put it back together the way it's supposed to be so that it doesn't cause further problems in other dimensions. Um, sometimes I think that's true, yeah. but I, you know, I adopt a new angle on it all the time and then fold it over into yeah. what I was thinking before. Yeah. Same. I mean, I think it's, I think it's the only way. I think like if you, you know, given our lack of actual information about it, I think sort of anyone who comes to it with, you know, the sort of attitude of this is exactly what it is. This is how it all works. Everyone else is wrong. Just, you're just not going to believe them because it's like, in its very nature, it's not tangible. So how can anyone know, you know? Mm, it's like Robert Anton Wilson's approach to the radical yeah. agnosticism. Maybe logic. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is there, with so many rabbit, hole, rabbit holes and reality tunnels to explore, why would you stick to just one? Yeah. Life's yeah. too short for a single reality tunnel. That's what I always say. on um i think it was on twitter or i think it was twitter i know it's on some social media you you posted a uh that you'd um received a book about the uh the sundown clown oh yes and 
Yeah. What's your take on that? Because that's that's like a really fascinating and creepy story, and it's mm. always like, like have you have you got a particular it, take on it? Or? You did a really 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 good interview uh, for our Strange Skies on that, and I'll link to it in the show notes as well because I really really enjoyed that episode. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the kind of case where I didn't realize until I was going to be on Our Strange Skies how recently that's been kind of uh, in the zeitgeist of high strangeness. Um, but looking into it, it's like it first w- was published as a report in 1977, I think, before yeah. a um, journal, and uh, didn't it went unnoticed pretty much. Like nobody really talked about it until the Cryptonaut podcast covered it um, in 2016, I think. So that's a long time to go without, you know, just this, this, uh, relatively unknown account. And it's just really because of the internet era and podcasting era that we, we've become more aware of it. So that's kind of interesting in itself. Um, and this book that's out now that you can purchase on Amazon is a collaboration between Philip Mantle's flying disc press in the UK and um, the archives for the unexplained in Sweden. So really what it is, is it's like a photo copy of the initial case report on, on the Sandown clown that was written for before, uh, including like the actual handwritten letters by the man who claimed his children saw the entity or his daughter saw the entity with her friend. Um, And uh, so what you have is the original case file, which is, Pretty interesting because I noticed thumbing through it that there were two other encounters that sounded similar to Sandown Sam on the mainland uh, in Wiltshire. Okay, and I didn't one, know about that. Yeah, it's just a brief mention of there was a woman that saw one in uh, in Warminster, I think, and the other one was in um, the somewhere somewhere on the border of Wiltshire. So, and were these were these adults the other people who saw it? Yeah. Well, Mm. okay. Now I'm going (laughs) to, now I'm going to put my caveats here because I hate being wrong, but yeah, but one of them at least was an adult woman. And I think the other one was either a man or a, or, or like a teenage boy. Um, I mean, there's, there's loads here to to talk about because I mean, you you did uh, a blog post on that as well, didn't you about the Sundown clown? Well, Um, it's kind of, it's the kind of thing with like clowns in general, like clowns will keep hampering you. So if you go down the, if you start, if you start to dealing with clowns, man, I'll tell you, they don't leave them. <laughs> and uh, I started that whole podcast saying that everybody that listens to it is going to start having clown synchronicities. And um, I was hesitant to even approach Sandown Sam because it seems like it's been covered a number of times, really very limited information. You got a very yeah. short story and um, you can tell it in 10 minutes. And then what do you do? Spend half an hour talking about what it might've been mm. when really report from children you don't really know you know um i have a hard time dismissing that though because my earliest encounter was pretty wild and i was a child at the time and i would yeah. fully expect people not to believe me you know yeah um, i mean it's just got that like same feel to it just that kind of almost absurdity and that right. you know sort yeah. of thing that that we've talked about dream logic and uh but i think there's also like child logic which yeah. is kind of qu- quite similar to dream similar, logic yeah. in a way, but the, it's just sort of slightly different. And that's, again, that's kind of what that reminded me of. It's just sort of, yeah, it has uh, child logic to it. But like, I think that that's really interesting in terms of, of thinking about the phenomenon as a whole. 
I'll have um, to try to uh, to verify this because I'm going to make a wild claim. But I read somewhere at some point that the uh, dominant um, like brain waves that are in children are very similar to either hallucinations or dreams. Right. So, yeah. So so because their brains haven't sort of fully developed, they're basically constantly in that state of sort of dream and, and hallucination. Well, I'm going to toddler, you're like tripping all the time pretty much. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, yeah, uh, which is re- really, really fascinating. But going back to the – we talked about the absurdity and the cartoonish element that a lot of these encounters have, and that's not just encounters that kids have like the Sandown Clown or mine in your experiences. Um, I mean, a lot of high strangeness is just very absurd, very – cartoonish and it seems like you were saying before that the phenomenon kind of has a sense of humor in some way like that and we've talked a bit on this show about how i find it really difficult to believe encounters or encounter reports that are too story-like or too logical um and that comes a lot with the kind of nuts and bolts approach to say ufos for example um or even the cryptozoological approach to bigfoot you know worth saying it is actually a primate that lives in the forest that no one's discovered yet um it seems less believable in a way than the absurdity that comes along with high strangeness you know that element of high strangeness for me makes me think well why would someone make that up right well i I suppose i think what i'm trying to get here is what do you think high strangeness is what is that strangeness that absurdity that comes along with the phenomena uh, it's the only true reality. Right. <laughs> the rest of us are just dicking around over here, but that's the true stuff right there. So, um, I, I, I don't know, like the, the sand down Sam is, is a great example of that, but there's, there's plenty of stories where, um, I, I think the whole design is to shock you out of the mundane reality. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, and, um, that that's, I, th- I think Fred Anderson touched on this recently when he wrote about clowns. Yeah, and um, unintentionally he didn't realize that I had written about something very similar. But it seems like we're of a similar mind, where there's uh, there's an there's an, a version of hypnosis called shock induction, and um, you can find like I think on YouTube there's videos of Darren Brown. Um, uh, doing an example of this, the shock induction with hypnosis usually is done by kind of like coming up to somebody and putting your hand on their chest and like hitting them in the back of the knee. So they start to fall and then you catch them. And in that moment of free fall, you put a suggestion in their head and, right. and they're so shocked because they don't know what's happening. They lose orientation suddenly and they're falling and that's the point where you implant that. So, but that would work just as well if you just uh, through pure absurdity, uncanniness, oh, uncanniness, yeah. you yeah. in a frame of mind where suddenly you're susceptible to all kinds of ideas. Yeah, so, because you. I mean, it's like that thing where you, um, if someone like robs you or is going to attack you, you just do something completely ridiculous, and they're just uh, what? Because it just like sh- like you say, it just sort of shocks them out of it. Out of right. it. Um, I'm not saying that's definitely going to work. So if anyone's listening and thinking of doing that, you know. But just consider that you could probably warp somebody's reality doing that. 
I mean, yeah. Valet that in one of his books where somebody comes up and asks you, like, excuse me, do you have the time? And you say, oh, it's uh, 3.15. And he says, no, it's not. It's 6.30 and then walks away. Like, that yeah. might be enough to disrupt, like, what goes on in your head that, yeah, that yeah. somebody could implant something. And then all of a sudden you have this, like, psychedelic experience that can't... <laughs> it, it, it reminds me of the, um, the the Men in Black stuff as well, you know, the, the sort of classic Keel stuff with the, with the Men in Black and sort yeah. of the... And that's where I went with it. Is everything that men in black do that's just bizarre? Like take a pen from you and study it like that's something you've never seen before, and then you say like, "Oh well, you can have that if you like it so much," and they just start giggling and run out the door with it. Like that's <laughs> yeah. enough. That would be enough for your average person to just have their frame of reality cracked. Mm. And when that crack is there, you can you can slip stuff in. You know. Do you think this? It's something which is designed to affect people individually or do you think it's designed on a global scale to bring about some kind of change in our consciousness as a race uh probably both yeah uh, i you the the thing is that we're all intimately tied together i honestly believe that we're all just aspects of one giant consciousness when you think yeah. about it um and as above so below anything that happens to you as an individual is rippling out and happening to everybody else in some way, shape or form. Right. Mm, yeah. But the way that plays out in a linear reality is very strange and traceable. Um, just not traceable through, through physical hard data a lot of the time, but sometimes you get a glimpse of it. So um, if I write something on my blog and nobody reads it and then years from now it gets archived and, maybe somebody prints out a copy of it and then that printed out copy ends up on somebody's lap like a hundred years from now and helps them put the dots together on something. Then I now have a bridge from me now to that person a hundred years from now. Yeah. And, and that's a one-to-one -one equation. It's, it's a direct connection. It's on there. We're almost quantumly entangled now. If they really gleaned, if they thoroughly grokked what I was saying then, and we were of the same mind, it's the same thing as time travel to me. Right. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and I think that these things do. They spider web out. Uh, anyone's experience then gets uh, internalized by them, and then it gets told again. So if I hear a story that sounds pretty straightforward and it sounds like a nuts and bolts experience and it's presented to me as nuts and bolts or a flesh and blood Bigfoot and they're treating it as such, then I know I'm already, I'm already receiving something that's been filtered through a number of things. Yeah. A lot of witnesses have bizarre stuff. And, and what I hear in the community a lot nowadays is, well, the people doing the investigation don't care about the other weird stuff that happened. They don't want the high strangeness because it makes their story less credible. Yeah. Leave it out. But sometimes the witnesses don't even report it because they don't want to be thought of as crazy. Right. And, it, and I know both of you have had synchronicities that, it, and, and any particular synchronicity is so highly personalized. And it's so specific that you have to backtrack and explain how, how these things are significant to you in order for it to be a profound synchronicity at the end of the story. And you end up being all over the place, not yeah. dissimilarly to the way I'm talking right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you just know, don't you? You just understand like that. You just know on a personal level that that's, you know, the, well, you the, when it's happening. For sure. But that, you know, what I'm suggesting is that uh, there is a risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And when we have these pr more um, refined reports of, of, of encounters, um, 
I wouldn't say I don't believe them or I believe them less than I believe the really weird stuff. Um, to me, they're just as useful. And I think like as data points, they're still useful. And, and I think there's room in all of this because um, whatever this mystery school is requires participants of certain offices. And some of those offices are purely materialist scientific and they're just there to file away the data that they can confirm. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. We do need those people. Like we need the Mickwests of the world as much as we need uh, the Hame Mosans, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) because that's what makes the UFO world um, move. You need both ends of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much that I want to ask you based around this, but a lot of it is going to be, I think, quite general questions. So we had Joseph Matheny on the show quite recently, and one of the ideas that sort of struck me whilst we were talking to him was how because obviously his specialism is in this alternate reality games you know and and the way in which they can manipulate people's consciousness or even manipulate what i would say in in scare quotes as consensus reality and it made me obviously think and i think i suggested this in the episode that we did with him that consensus reality is probably just a game that we're all really, really invested in at the moment that, that kind of forms a veneer over what is actually real. So the idea that, you know, you have to get up at half seven in the morning, commute to work, do eight hours of work, make enough to cover your rent or your mortgage, come home and go to bed and do it all again the next day, brings, not only is that a reality that we are all currently brought into because of the economic system that we live in, but it's also distracting us from what is actually real. And I think that that goes along with what Hansen says about liminality and that kind of thing in that um, it's the people who are maybe on the edges of society who don't contribute to that consensus reality as much who have these strange experiences. Yeah, the the anti-structure sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, well, for sure. But there's a, there's something to be said for routine. And <laughs> the system <laughs> yeah. we have, though it may not be great, is, you know, better than complete anarchy and foraging for a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, I'm, I'm glad yeah, I have a house that I pay a mortgage on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you wish I didn't have to work as much, but, and, but, uh, um, I'm, I'm willing to do some amount of labor to make, ensure that I have money to pay for a house. You know, like there's a, there's a give and take. And I think there's a certain level of responsibility and a danger of people kind of abandoning said responsibility if they want to, um, take that too, too far in one direction or another without any real plan. But to your point, yeah, I mean, we've always had traditions of people that are shamans, you know, and you can look at shamanism in any number of ways. It's kind of a loaded term, especially nowadays. Um, it's not not the most useful one, I don't think. But um, when, you, when you have, uh, w- whenever you're experiencing that kind of anti-structure to your life, those liminal periods is when this stuff tends to, tends to pop up more. Um, but there's, there's little ways to do that as well. You don't have to abandon society to, 
to manifest these things. You can just be a little bit weirder about how you approach society. (laughs) You'll have some of those effects. And there's something to be said for, for conformity um, in the respect that in, in a lot of ancient traditions, like the, the old Kabbalah stuff, you needed to reach a certain age and respectability and have like children in a home to prove that you're responsible enough to shoulder the weight of the magic you were learning, you know, like, um, so uh, there is something to be said for that, like reckless wizards running around in their early twenties, uh, doing magic everywhere is maybe not the best thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think it's the same with drugs, isn't it? It's like anything that sort of affects your consciousness. You're probably best doing it when you're a bit older and sort of. Yeah. And, and, and with the golden Dawn, um, I think a lot of them would have uh, basically said you should, you should pursue like psychology a little bit before you get into magic to make sure. That yeah. I think it's always God. He said you, you should yeah. have so many thousand hours of therapy before you right. become a magician, which I think uh, to, to your point is, is actually like really good advice because it, it is just what uh, Buckley was saying is before you're, physically and mentally and emotionally developed properly um this stuff can be dangerous <laughs> you know? yeah it can be but it can also be part of the path so yeah. it's um you know and i'm speaking from experience as somebody that did a lot of probably misguided wizardry in my teens and 20s <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think um, in sort of Western society today in 2024, which people do you think are closest to the idea of uh, a shaman? Um, Not necessarily a, a, a famous person, but like, you know, uh, which which role in society or, or outside of society falls closest to that, do you think? Uh, you can find it anywhere, really. Um, I think... Uh, I think there's something to be said for just finding those bits in people that you meet. Um, and yeah. I've, I've often found that with like, you know, unhoused people that maybe um, nobody talks to, you know, like they're yeah. asking for change and people try to avoid them. And it's like, sometimes if you just have a human conversation with them and recognize that they're, they're another human being, like yeah. <laughs> even if there's no material swapping, you know, if you're not, get, you don't have money, but you have a conversation with them. Like sometimes there's things to be gleaned there. Um, Joseph Matheny said exactly the same thing. Yeah. Pretty much. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, because it's really I mean, that can have the same effect too of shocking your system. Cause I've heard some wild stuff from, from those, you know, people that I've run into. Um, I think the city I live in has a, has, has kind of, uh, extra weird people in it. But, um, but I mean, there also are spiritual teachers around. Um, the trouble with it is that they're hidden in plain sight, and it's like they may be the unhoused person. They might be the guy that um, has a Zen smile while he's mopping the floor at the mall. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it could be, uh, it, it could be like anyone anywhere. It could be a doctor just seeing patients and he has something really profound going on in his head. And like, he's the messages that people are going to generate aren't necessarily because they meant to generate something profound. It's going to mean something to you. And mm, it's really about yeah. how you interpret it from everybody that you encounter. Yeah. I love that. I, and, I've, and I have encountered people that I'm not even sure were real people. Cause who knows, like the people that you <laughs> run into sometimes, like the second you're not there, they may vanish, you know? Yeah. I had a tarot reading from a woman like that once. She just vanished right after we had a tarot reading. <laughs> what was the reading like? Was it really good? Uh, it was my tarot reading from a ghost. I went to a bookstore um, with my buddy. It was right before the 4th of July, and it was around my friend's birthday. And we went to um, – so I was out with him, and we're just out on the town. We're going to get coffee somewhere. And uh, this was right around the time I was graduating high school, I think going into my senior year of high school, maybe. But um, he didn't like the coffee shop that I always went to. So we went to the bookstore, which also sold coffee. And we encountered this woman outside. She was like an older lady uh, with a whole bunch of shopping bags. And um, she had them spread out all over the floor, right in front of the entrance to the store. And she was digging through them. And she asked me for a cigarette when I walked up. And I gave her one. But when she looked at me, her eyes were just like, cataracts like white like milky white like you couldn't see it there's no way she could see as far as i was concerned but I, she was looking for cigarettes and couldn't find them so i gave her one uh we didn't spend long in the store because they were closing up the cafe part of it we came back out and she asked us for a ride back to the store to buy cigarettes and i and i said yeah sure just you know i, I had like a like kind of like a two-seater mustang like one of the really small mustangs like yeah. convertibles and it had a back seat, but it was tiny. So I had my friend get in the back seat, had her get in the front. And we drove down the street to a pharmacy and um, we had a brief conversation. She told me her name was Clara and that she had been hit by a car and her doctor said that she ought to get more um, exercise as a form of physical therapy to help her recover. But she had like at least 13 plastic bags from the store. Like there was a lot for like a grown person to carry, especially walking like half a mile down the road. Cause the store was not that close, you know? So, yeah. um, she, you know, she started saying stuff like she shouldn't have known. She said, Oh, you, you two are musicians. And, uh, and I said, yep, that's, yeah, yeah. how'd you know that? You know, she's just like, Oh, I just kind of know things. And I'm like, so you're like a psychic. And she goes, yeah, you know, I do readings and stuff. She goes, since you've been so nice to me, would you like a reading? And I said, sure. So we pulled into the Walgreens parking lot close to the street where there was a street lamp. And um, again, very small car. There's not room in there. And she produces a pack of tarot cards from somewhere that's all wrapped up inside of a big bam bandana. She pulls out an honest-to-goodness crystal ball, which <laughs> Excellent. Like, was the size of... Um, you know, somewhere between a baseball and a softball, but, you know, like a decent-sized crystal ball. And... Um, I can't for the life of me remember where she even pulled that from. Like, uh, <laughs> like I didn't, I don't recall there being a bag. Like it just kind of came out from her clothes or something. And she did this tarot reading and the reading really freaked me out. But what was even freakier was when she got out of the car, um, she took all her bags out. She asked me if I wanted a cherry. She, one of her bags had a bunch of cherries in it. 
I, I took I took the cherry from her and started eating it. And she got out of the car and my buddy got out of the back and got in the front because it's only two doors. So he had to get out to get back in. Um, and as soon as he closed the door, it was like I saw her bend down to pick up her bags and he closed the door. And then I looked straight ahead, just thinking about the reading and the whole experience. And then he's like not listening to me while I'm talking. I'm like, man, that was wild. And I'm like, dude, are you even listening to me? And he's looking out the window and I'm like, what, what's your problem? And he's just like, where'd she go? It was like, she bent down to pick up those bags and never came back up. And, and he was like right there. Like he closed the door behind him, looked out the window and he's like, what? (laughs) She was there just a second ago. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe she went in the store. Did the reading have any impact on your life at all? It did because, she basically told me I was going to be a dad and yeah. I was like that no teenager wants to hear that, you know, <laughs> yeah. no teenagers' parents want to hear that for sure. You know? And it was like the girl I was dating, like her sister had had a child as a teenager and it like ruined her life. And like, I knew her parents would like murder me. And, uh, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and uh, so it was basically a message from the universe telling you to rubber up. <laughs> well, yeah. Or just avoid, the possibility of that happening, which is what I did, um, right. uh, you know, just kind of avoid her in Toto, you know. Um, but the, the weird part was that she told me that this was going to be a blonde woman, and and the girl I was seeing at the time, her parents were Greek and Egyptian, so she had like really dark, like auburn hair and like olive skin, um, pretty far from a blonde. So yeah. that, that also had me worried about like, unless she's completely wrong. Um, like what's the, what's all this about a blonde woman, you know? Um, and so I avoided seeing her in person for like a good couple days. Um, <laughs> and I was just nervous about it. I talked to her on the phone briefly, but I didn't tell her about it. And then we had a cookout on the 4th of July, uh, independence day at my buddy's house. And I went to pick her, you know, like she was coming to that. So she showed up at the cookout and had bleached her hair. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and it was just like a platinum blonde when she showed up. She somehow bleached it completely blonde. And I was like, well. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, it was kind of uh, kind of unreal. But yeah, I don't, I, again, I don't know who that woman was that gave the reading. That just, um, I didn't end up becoming a dad, which also makes me wonder, is there's an alternate universe somewhere where I never ran into this woman and had tarot reading and ended up being a dad when I was in high school. Yeah, you know, there's probably right. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a there's a version of me out there that relate re- a completely different life. Yeah, might be called eighteen normal. Not eighteen normal. Yeah, eighteen <laughs> dead. Uh, yeah. <laughs> AP basic. <laughs> yeah, AP white. Like, you know, like, you know, but like that's a thing, and and it, it occurred to me one day while driving. Um. I was just driving one day and I'm like, holy shit. I've outlived a lot of the alternate universe me's at this point. I'm pretty sure that yeah. <laughs> like there's a good deal of timelines where I just already bit the dust. Cause there's plenty yeah, of times in my same. life where I did something stupid and probably should have died. And I'm like, yep, there's a whole lot of dead me's and other timelines. I'm just the yeah. one that keeps going for some reason. Absolutely. I, I had a, um, a shamanic journey uh, once when um, my I had like a, a spirit guide and they showed me a tree basically. And 
pointed out where um, you know they said the branches are your life and they pointed out where some of them had ended you know like going through you're basically saying you know in alternate timelines you've gone at these points you know it kind of brought that that home to me quite heavily it is weird to think about right you're like woof yeah wonder can you be haunted by the ghost of yourself from a separate dimension where you've already died it also makes me wonder like do you if you like i mean have, have you actually died and you get shifted onto another timeline did one of those crazy things that you did in the past actually go really wrong and kill you and you just get shifted onto another timeline a lot of people think that yeah i mean yeah. Like, like anthony peak have you ever listened to that guy yeah yeah i've read yeah. uh I've read basically like books. it's a video game and you just had another guy so yeah, <laughs> pick, yeah. Up, <laughs> yeah. pick up where you left off you know? <laughs> yeah i mean it's um i read a book recently about um uh like uh <laughs> simulation hypothesis simulation hypothesis yeah. um and sort of its similarity to how computer games work because the yeah. guy who wrote it was like a MIT scientist who went on to like make computer games and he, you know that's kind of what he does and just like so much about how like that that hypothesis works is just the same as you know and, and the idea of like dying in one level and going to another one or like with a computer game if you die you can still sort of start it again right um yeah, so it, it's like die. that whole principle <laughs> yeah. yeah or you yeah, can start yeah. as like a different character or whatever and it's like maybe that's where all these other variants are it's uh kind of hurts your head to think about i have beefs with it personally yeah uh, uh, my main beef with it is that that's just our it's the same thing as as a child encountering the mascots from your favorite brand of chips yeah or, um or crisps rather uh trying to get your vernacular correct <laughs> yeah yeah thank you but, you know, anyway um or you know like a cartoon character as a yeah. kid because it's yeah. the closest reference yeah yeah so it's this, it's the height of our sort of technology so it's the best that we can much like how they used to say the universe was made of clockwork and stuff hundreds yeah. of years ago and yeah. I, I find that much more appealing um yeah. what i really like is i think that people had this figured out um thousands of years ago oh yeah, yeah. and when you look at when you look at indian um the old ancient Vedantic stuff and, and uh, the Hinduism and Buddhism, yeah. their, conceptual, their, their conceptual ideas about how all of this works. Um, the wheel of life, the Dhamma chakra, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it's, and the idea that there is this illusory nature to the reality in our living life that is referred to as Maya. And it doesn't mean that nothing is real, it means that that we have a sort of veil over our eyes. We see everything through a certain lens, and things around us appear material. This appears the height of reality, but it's not. It's all yeah. information. It's all energy that is solidifying in a very material and physical form in front of us. Um, but but there is a reality beyond that reality. Because it ties and, in with quantum physics as well, doesn't it? It's just like, it does, yeah. And I think the simulation to me is a way of explaining it uh, in ways that make it sound like the holodeck on Star Trek, you know, uh, yeah. or something like that, or using the Matrix as an example. And to me, um, 
these things were already pretty well expressed by Plato's yeah. Shadows on Cave or um, yeah. th things that were written in sutras by by the Buddha himself, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or Hindu saints down through the ages, you know. And um, and, and uh, so so I think to me it's it's just the most modern skin, yeah. On to to use a simulation term, <laughs> it's yeah. the most modern skin on on a very old idea. Um, and, and that's uh, not to say I disagree with it, but it is useful to think about it in computing terms because, um, when we were talking about like a child being able to interact with this stuff in the same way that somebody on a hallucinatory trip or in a dream state might, um, there is something about that interface, right? So if you're thinking yeah. about it in technological terms, you need to be speaking the same language. You need the right component to plug into the right, right input to uh to interface properly so things have to line up on a consciousness level mm. in order for that to work uh and, and likewise everything on a computer operates on bits and now and and, and like data and and uh yeah. megabytes and terabytes and yeah it's all information it's all binary code ultimately but um um nowadays we have quantum computing so it'll be interesting to see <laughs> where that takes us <laughs> yeah and we have machines uh, pretending to be Christopher Walken on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, surprised and, uh, I'm surprised you weren't fooled by that and didn't think it was the real Christopher Walken. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also it gives us a like a common language to talk about it with because you know everyone, or you know, well, it's not right to say everyone in the world, but like so many people in the world have some understanding of a computer or a video game or something. Yeah. It gives people a kind of way in, doesn't it? Well, it's right. it's simpler as well than sort of um, like when you think about kind of the, the, the quantum stuff and the idea of um, like the collapsing wave function and, and, you know, sort of non-locality. And it's like, that's, that can be expressed really um, quite eloquently by saying that it's like how a, in a in a video game it, it renders what it needs you to see you know so if yeah. you go to a certain that that world doesn't exist there isn't inside your computer every level and every like it's not all there you can't go to it if your character your avatar isn't there and it's like right. so it works it works really similar but and it generates it as you go yeah, yeah. and that's right. exactly yeah. the same isn't it as the as the quantum stuff so it's like it's a it's a convenient explanation um well that's why like the mystical stuff is endlessly appealing to me. And um, when you talk, uh, whenever I talk about occultism, I feel a little bad because like a lot of the Western tradition just is not appealing to me. Mm. <laughs> right. A lot of Eastern mysticism and stuff like that. And I think it encapsulates a lot of it better. And, and that, that extends to, to more modern conceptions of, of like, you know, simulated realities and stuff, because I just find it tiresome because I feel like it's more directly stated in a Zen Cohen, as long as you can interpret and internalize the, the Cohen properly. Yeah. And uh, sometimes the whole point of the Cohen is not that there it's teaching you a truth or that you're learning something from it. It's snapping you out of lin your linear and uh, linear narratives. Um, but all that being said, um, it reminds me of one image from a book that always stuck with me is a page out of the Ram Dass book, Be Here Now. 
And it says, the next message is where you are when you're ready for the next message. Whenever you're ready for this message, it will appear to you and meet you where you are. You know, and it's like the sign is always on the door and it has a big picture of a door that says uh, entrance to the magician's theater, price of admission, your mind, you know, mm. uh, and then it says for, for mad men only on it. And it's like, uh, and then at the bottom, it says always there. Question is, can you see it? Yeah. And, and, and that's really the way it is, is getting into a meditative state where, um, everything you're doing in your daily life is part of a meditative practice and it's meditation in motion. Um, as you're moving along, you're, you're, um, the gears in your mind are, are chugging away and, and you can be removed from it. You know, something else is going on and you're receptive and you'll find what I start started referring to as messages from the cosmos. And whenever I post my messages from the cosmos on, on Twitter, um, I feel like there's maybe two or three people that get it out of the people <laughs> understand what I'm doing. But the message from the cosmos to me is when you're receptive and you're open and you're walking around and you're going through your day-to-day -day life and you see something a little bit out of the ordinary, that, then you zero in on it. It could be like a chance encounter with wildlife that you weren't expecting or yeah. uh evidence of wildlife and and that's that's a very common animistic uh form of shamanism is communion with nature through animals right and i have plenty of encounters like that but it's also to be found in just random litter on the side of the road something somebody discarded and then you find it and it's right there in front of you and it means something to you for me for a while this was playing cards i just kept finding playing cards like on the side of the road um you know, in a yeah, parking spot, that. in a parking lot. Um, sometimes it's a fortune cookie fortune. I find the fortune from a fortune cookie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's like a piece of a sign that broke off and it's only like part of the letters or part of the numbers. And like, whatever it is, when you start looking at the world through this lens and you start realizing that there was a whole machinery of causality that led to that thing being right in front of your feet at that moment. Um, that's where you're generating synchronicities from. And it may be that you're reading meaning into it too greatly. So that's why it's something separate from a synchronicity. It's what I refer to as a message from the cosmos. It's the oversoul of the universe dropping something directly in your lap for you to, to perceive. And it's only there to perceive if you're right for perceiving it. So <laughs> I like that. That's good. I've, I've had that happen before, like where, uh, like I'll listen to a podcast and I'll see something, which I'll be listening to a podcast and like walking around and I'll see something like on the ground, which, which, uh, pertains exactly to what I've been listening to. The, the, there was a notable one where they were talking about George Washington and they said the word George Washington. And I looked up and there was a pub, um, called the George Washington, right in front right. of me and the funny thing is that this is you know it's the united kingdom there's not george washington isn't like a a, a big right. deal over here you know yeah. it's not it's not like a, a common pub name it's not like every town has a george washington right yeah and i find when i try to discard them it's it's kind of funny because it's like i was inside of a building that was being worked on there was you know, being construction was being done on it. And I found a letter T on the ground 
And um, it had been part of a sign on an office door. And that was the single letter that it was left when it fell on the floor. And I'm like, okay, you know, maybe a message from the cosmos, but it's really just the letter T. And then uh, the next day I was uh, at another place and I find another letter T, same thing. Uh And, And it's like later the same day, I'm looking through a cabinet and I see a Scrabble tile turned upside down just sitting on a shelf. And I'm like, you know, I bet I know what letter that is. And I pick it uh-huh. up and it's C. And I'm just like, okay, well then there we go. That must be a message from the cosmos. Cause it's beating me over the head with the letter T. Do, do you think there's a relationship between that and something like say tarot, where you've got like almost a pattern? It's exactly like something. tarot. Yeah. They're exactly like tarot for me because, because my method of reading tarot is, um, uh, it's not like I abandon the actual prescribed meaning of the cards, but what's more important to me in the card is whatever's going to jump out at me from that image. So, um, you know, if I pull the fool, I'll just use one of my favorite cards. If you pull the fool, um, and for whatever, what I do is I unfocus my eyes and it's kind of the same thing I do when I'm doing any kind of meditation or trance work is I just let my, my, my eyes go lazy and everything turns fuzzy whatever's still in focus is the important part. So I'll do that where I look at it, kind of unfocus my eyes and say like the little dog is in the corner that's in focus, but everything else is kind of, so that dog means something. And then you start using lateral thinking and um, dream logic and say, well, what is dog? Like what's the significance of a dog? Why is the small dog? What's the purpose of the dog being there in this picture? Like what is the dog trying to do for the man? What's he trying to do against the man? And you, you just let that run in the background while you're interpreting the card for somebody. And and you'll find out things about them that you shouldn't have known that aren't in the little booklet that came with your tarot deck for that card. Mm, yeah, um, I really like that idea. It's like yeah, uh, one of our um, listeners who sadly passed away at the end of last year, um, his name was Baz, and he was... Um, he was brilliant when it came to tarot stuff. Like he'd, he'd always like help everyone out on the discord with like, um, you know, sort of interpretations of tarot and his, his approach to it. We were talking about him yesterday. His approach to the whole tarot thing was sort of quite similar to yours. I think he had like, he just, he just did his own thing and kind of worked outside of the prescribed boundaries and just like kind of, uh, I think Hein will be able to explain this more eloquently than me, but yeah. Just that he was pure intuition, you know, much, much more intuitive, reading than sort of flicking through a book or like you say the little pamphlet that comes with the tarot mm. cards you know it felt more like he and which a lot like how you described it like he yeah, found some understanding yeah. yeah intuition is huge that's a big part of it and um you know talking to alan greenfield earlier like he kind of referred to uh i heard him in a podcast refer to like illuminism and his idea of what gnosis actually is is like a radical intuitive knowledge of of God or of of the mystical nature of things, you know. Yeah, and, that, and that's what it is. Is like if you can trust your intuition, if you can refine your intuition and trust your knowledge based on what you've gleaned, um, uh, you you can uh, astound yourself <laughs> with with the magical effects that you get from it, you know. Do you think this is something I've wondered about a lot because I feel like, and again, I'm coming to griping about modern life and, and whatnot. Like I feel like as a kid, I had pretty good intuition and that just engaging with 
the stress of everyday life and so on has brought me further away from my intuition or, or at least from being able to follow my intuition. Is there anything that you could suggest to me and, and our listeners like to help develop your intuition in that way? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's something that needs to be developed. I think it's more, um, uh, it, it's more some of the filters and layers of, of assumption and consensus reality that need to be shaved away. Mm. Um, some of it's a letting go, like a letting go of pre preconceived notions and, and allowing yourself to emerge from that, you know, uh, more, more so than developing, uh, you know, it's not, it's not it's muscle. There. Yeah. You're not, uh, you're not, you're not doing repetition and, and building, um, building muscle off of it. I don't think, I think it's more just something that's already in there that, that needs to be dug out. And is that part of what you were saying about the messages from the cosmos? You're listening to that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it much the same way I would look at a tarot card. The yeah. whole, my, my whole plane of vision in front of me as I'm walking <laughs> down the street is a tarot card and right. I'm picking out little things, you know? Now, obviously if I'm very busy or something's really bothering me or I'm walking my dog and I'm trying to make sure he doesn't dart into the street while, while I'm walking him, uh, there, you got to focus when you're driving. There is some amount of that where you have to focus, you know, um, you can kind of let the robot take over to a certain extent, but you can't be like, uh, unfocusing your eyes and, and divining from what you see in front of you. <laughs> no, yeah. But you know, throughout the day, it's like when you get into a practice of this, I think, I think other people will kind of eventually get what I mean with it. And I think some people do like, I think Steph quick, when I started posting messages from the cosmos probably knew exactly what I meant without me having to explain it much. And I intentionally called it that because it sounds a bit silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the things I have noticed about your um, social media posts is that there is a, a humorous element often in, in you know, your writing and in what you post on social media, etc., in your podcast. Do you think, what's your, what are your thoughts are about the, the value and place of humor in, in these areas, in sort of the occult, in magic, in all, all of this ufology? Um, well, it's... Uh... That's there in part just because I am, in fact, a goofy bastard. Um, <laughs> I'm a very silly person, but I take my silliness very seriously. And that by that, I mean that in occultism, uh, if you're going to be dabbling in magic, you had better have a sense of humor. You know, uh, I think a lot of people tend to be very grave and solemn about it. Mm. And for sure you should be there should be reverence like you should have a respect there's a healthy respect that should be had especially for other practitioners practitioners that came before a healthy balance of of um these traditions and um an effort to respect them and where they came from and and not be dismissive of various cultures or 
appropriate from other cultures and try to claim it as your own. There, there, there's a respect element that needs to go on in there. But also, the way this stuff tends to work best is just the silliest shit imaginable. So, like, yeah. uh, Bugs Bunny can absolutely be incorporated into your magical practice. You know, yeah. um, you, you can try to channel Elvis if you want. And I mean, I, and I have. I mean, I did one of my meditative trances, and, you know, Elvis came out of a hole in the sky and gave me a flaming sword. I don't know what that means. Nice. <laughs> Amazing. But that's what happened. I think that's probably yeah. one of the coolest things that anyone's ever yeah. said on our podcast. <laughs> on any podcast. <laughs> yeah, possibly. But you got to roll with it because, like, there's a lot of people that would be, I don't know, reading Aleister Crowley and thinking about, you know, doing a, a contact with their higher guardian angel and, and you know, like uh, doing a big ritual and all this other stuff and maybe conjuring some uh, goetic demons and talking to them and then doing a, um, you know, banishing ritual of the pentagram and getting rid of them and all this other stuff and uh, taking it very seriously and very gravely. And uh, if they went into a meditative trance and met Elvis, they would probably go, okay, well, this is all nonsense. Like, clearly I'm doing something yeah. wrong. It's all nonsense. I give up. Like, Or they'll just be uh, more intent on being very serious and very, no, no, this needs to be so much more Dungeons and Dragons. This needs to be much more heavy metal. This needs to be like the yeah. horror movies I grew up watching. And, and, and that's the reality they're going to create for themselves. It makes you wonder how many cool stories we've missed out on because people have been like, oh, I can't tell anyone that because it doesn't fit with my sort of serious, gloomy It's more persona. than you would think. Like, yeah. you're, you have family members, I'm sure, that are very straight-laced, that are, have had some bizarre experience that they're just like, I'm never, ever, ever telling anybody that. And, yeah, and sometimes yeah. people forget them. Sometimes people put it so far out of their mind that it's just gone. They, they never plan to tell anybody, so they get rid of it. You know, uh, I've, I've had experiences with people, more mon- more uh, more normal people uh, than me, that uh, were undeniable, and within a year or two, they forgot. They just they don't remember it, so they can't back me up on it. So it's as though it never happened to them, but it was so disruptive to their reality that they just put it out of out of their mind and then eventually completely forgot, you know? It's like, uh, it can be frustrating, but it's like, I saw a ghost in the middle of the road once and I thought I was hallucinating because it was not out of the ordinary entirely for me <laughs> at that point. In my life. <laughs> and, and, uh, my friend who was driving swerved around my hallucination and wow. I had to explain to him that that w- wasn't a real person in the road, that it was just my hallucination. And we drove back. It only took like 20 seconds. Like he pulled over as soon as I said that and turned around and drove back and she wasn't there anymore. And I asked him about this, like, to be fair, it was maybe five or six years later. He had no clue what I was talking about. I mean, there were substances involved that night, but (laughs) I remembered it. (laughs) But but he was the one to verify that my hallucination wasn't simply my hallucination unless I was projecting it out of my head, you know? A similar thing happened with the poltergeist activity. I told a friend all about the poltergeist activity I grew up with. And he said, I don't know what to tell you because I don't want to call you a liar. I don't think you're lying to me, but I think there must have been a reasonable explanation for that. It must be a rational explanation. And I said, well, fair enough. And I, we were at work and we were closing up a cafe. I went to clean the bathroom 
while I'm in the bathroom, I hear all of the CDs that we had stacked up on the shelf behind the counter explode off the shelves and land everywhere in the cafe. And he, he screamed. And I came in. He's just standing there repeating the words, I did not do that. He was at the register <laughs> counting the register. The shelf behind him exploded and the CDs went everywhere. And, uh, yeah, he forgot about that. Like, years later, I brought it up and he could not remember that happening. Yeah, it's like and, his brain just like... Yeah closed around it yeah. and just said nope yeah so um every i I'm, I'm willing to bet just about everybody has something bizarre like that happen and nearly all of them can't explain it they file it in the doesn't matter folder and put that folder in a drawer in the back of their brain that that is never going to be accessed again and they, <laughs> and they forget about it uh, otherwise um people that are into this weird stuff I find myself censoring, you know, I was talking to my friend Stardog who's had some of the weirdest experiences I've ever heard. And sometimes there's just little things that are just meaningful between the two of us. And it's like, I, you know, I realize now that even we do it, we even censor ourselves. We don't share everything like, you know, because some of this stuff would be too weird for me to explain to them, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's like um, having a, um, doing some deep meditation once, and there was the vision that I had was my dishwasher being held open by a wedge of fruitcake, and um, it seemed really, really meaningful to me at the time, and I wrote it down and everything, but that has no context, or how do you explain that to another person? Right. And yet, to me, it was really meaningful, and it's stuck in my brain, and I, I still think about it a lot. But it makes absolutely no sense uh, to, to anyone else who, who would have encountered that. Right. Yeah, I think it just means that you're an absolute fruitcake. Yeah. That could <laughs> yeah, be I mean, it, that, you know. That's what the universe is yeah, telling yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, that's telling you. You need to do the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you think synchronicity fits into all of this because you were saying how you you see a clear division between the messages from the cosmos that you collect and synchronicity itself yeah i mean i think the messages from the cosmos are the synchronicities that you go out looking for um they're still going to be very random and they're you don't have any control over where they pop up but um uh, synchronicity as a rule is very difficult to go out looking for or, or to yeah. generate. And I think there are some people that just kind of naturally generate it. And that that's, I'm fairly certain that's how I began talking to Stephanie quick is that she's been doing experiences or experiments with generating synchronicity for a long, long time. And, um, and when I first became friends with her, I'm like, you know, I'm a little bit of a synchronicity generator myself. So, and, um, and it's like what I said earlier about that interface, for whatever reason, Stephanie and I speaking to each other every day probably generates more of it, you know, just by virtue of the fact that we're talking to each other. Um, I think it's, I think it's the clearest and easiest language for the phenomena to use to get through to you. Right. Yeah. And even synchronicities can be uh, interpreted the same way you would interpret a message from the cosmos. But more often the specifics of the synchronicity don't mean anything at all. It's just there to tell you to, to pay attention. Right. Or that you're on yeah, the right track. Yeah. So, 
Because this is like what you were just saying about how people can have these very significant experiences like the, the CDs falling off the shelf or your friend swerving to miss your hallucination in the road and completely erase that from their minds. So something which is as seemingly innocuous as synchronicity people most people will go through their lives completely ignoring those things and writing them off completely right uh, the most they'll say is wow that's a hell of a thing that just happened yeah, yeah. Uh, um or like oh what a coincidence you know so, yeah yeah no me say well yeah <laughs> but i mean uh, i think th- i think we really do need those around you know yeah they, they yeah definitely i can't I'd like if 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 yeah can you imagine society would just crumble yeah yeah it would that's the thing like i think there's something to be said for structure because you can't have anti-structure if there wasn't one to begin with yeah absolutely yeah yeah worldview at all or, or do you have a spiritual practice or a magical practice or anything like that yeah I'm, uh, I consider myself to be a devout discordian uh, except every other Thursday where I draw a religion out of a hat and devote myself entirely <laughs> to that for the day uh, yeah <laughs> I, I think a lot of my spirituality is, is very much my spiritual beliefs are very much in line with um Buddhism, but probably closer to Taoism, and mm. and a little bit of a, a little bit of um, the Vedantic stuff, Vedas and 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 uh, Hindu beliefs. Um, I'm not like associated with anything formal in that respect. I've practiced uh, my own form of transcendental meditation since I was a teenager. Um, I was raised Catholic. And I fell into um, witchcraft in my teens and Buddhism a little bit after, studied a bunch of different world religions and uh, Christian hermitism and Western magical tradition and came full circle back to a lot of the Eastern stuff. And I tend to just resonate with the Eastern beliefs more. Um, But I never really lost the Catholic stuff I grew up with either. I think the communion of the saints in the Catholic tradition and their contemplative tradition is still very profound and sticks with me quite a bit. Uh, yeah. For the most part, um, I, I'm a, an eclectic discordian, uh, and I incorporate all the little things that I've found along the way from um, uh, Buddhist monks that I've talked to to like voodoo a bit and uh witchcraft that i participated in and and uh catholic monks i've talked to um all of that kind of rolls itself into into a non-linear uh pulsating dyson sphere in in my mind so so with the 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 current we've talked about humor and 
and it's rolled, you know, and on both sides, you know, so the humour of the phenomenon and the need to meet the phenomenon with a sense of humour. But there seems to be an, like an extreme lack of humour at the moment, it, particularly in things like UFO Twitter. Really? I think whole... UFO Twitter is a laugh riot. Uh, well, well, yeah, it's good to laugh at it, but I, it's like, I don't know whether they intend it to be funny. <laughs> but so you've got all the things like the Grush revelations and stuff, and it's all very um, serious. And what's your take on this whole disclosure thing and and the congressional hearings and everything, which is grabbing so much of headlines all over the world at the moment and yet to me it seems to be so far from my understanding of what the phenomena is um yeah i mean i try to be careful when i talk about this stuff because like i said earlier i think all of all of these voices have a seat at the table right like there are people that really want to stick to the idea of extraterrestrial craft coming from another planet to come here and contact us for whatever reason. And that the government knows something about it and they have reverse engineered the craft or whatever. It's all very nuts and bolts. It's uh, materialist. It's that this and that, uh, even though from what we understand of quantum or um, astrophysics, it seems really unlikely that something would come from another star system all the way here. Uh, at least not repeatedly, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not regularly. Uh, <laughs> not when they seen what's here. Anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then you end up with things like a jellyfish blob that may or may not be bird shit on a lens. It was bird shit. Uh, yeah. Definitely bird shit. <laughs> yeah. I've heard some pushback on that where somebody said it might've been some kind of balloon, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. It doesn't matter to me because Corbell to me is a joke, you know? Um, and he's the one really yeah. pushing it. And and um, that's where you end up becoming the, if you're not willing to play with the joke, right? If you're not, if you don't have a sense of humor, if you don't want to be part of the joke, you're going to end up being the punchline. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's why, that's really where Corbell is at these days. Um, the What I find with the whole thing is that um, I, I think people that are studying the extraterrestrial angle is good. I think people looking into whether or not the government knows more than we do about it, that's also good. But the danger is that there's a lot of players involved with their own personal motivations and narratives that they want to express. And some of that is worth pointing out as complete and utter bullshit. Um, yeah. I wrote a couple of posts on my blog kind of directly about this. And one of them was more focused on the idea of credibility uh, mm. and, uh, and and the idea that, well, we, we're only uh, disclosure seems to be about, well, you know, this person got visited by the CIA. So that must lend legitimacy to what they were saying, or these reports came from an air force pilot who's, less likely to be wrong or have a reason to lie about this. And, um, and, and some of that can be dismissed if you also consider that the, you know, it could also be a lie. There, there might be lies involved, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, it, you know, credibility is one thing. And when you get into the more, more pertinent 
post of mine was the spooky side of disclosure. Like the spooky angle on all of this is, is um, certainly worth considering, especially when you have people that were known to be um, part of perception management campaigns. And that's really a lot of what it has to do with is perception management on this stuff. So um, I think the disclosureist mindset already presupposes a number of things. It's based on some assumptions. And those assumptions are that UFO in and of itself or UAP, I always have to correct myself. UAP. <laughs> I have to appease. It's the, like Twitter and X. I have to, I have to appease the UAP, UAP ons out there or you apologists it's one of those that's a good but uh um the it presupposes that whatever acronym you want to use means alien means alien from outer space specifically when it doesn't what it means is unknown right yeah Mm. right and um and, and this is one major beef i have with the disclosure movement is um, the ETH is almost entirely dominant up until recently when they started using the term N, uh, NHI, non-human intelligence. Yeah. yeah. But it seems like recently it's, it is moving a bit more towards, um, you know, something spiritual, albeit with a more religious slant, you know, um, when you look at sort of Pasolka's work and, and stuff like that, yeah. it sort of seems to be shifting a bit in that direction but it's kind of not in a way that's spiritual it's not spiritual in a way that's kind of uh it's not ecumenical i mean it's spiritual through a very catholic lens you know a very western Catholic lens and it's it's uh, you know obviously kind of i'm sure some of that relates to the fact that it is the u.s government and the u.s is a very religious country yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, but I mean, that's also part of it. That's the other assumption that gets made is that the U.S. government has um, uh, has the authority and the priority with all of this. It's like you know, we're just one nation in the world. Yeah. Like, what, what makes the U.S. so much more knowledgeable? I mean, when you get into the spooky side of things, the U.K. has a much longer tradition of of spooky intelligence gathering and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about this and, yesterday. And France and Russia, Buckley. basically, those are the world's like they all had intelligence and like national security as a thing, going back through monarchies yeah. down through the ages. You know, uh, and there's there's not much uh, hidden really in, within the UK aristocracy that that you know that, that there are secret societies and yeah. and cliques and groups and whatnot. Um, it's it's almost kind of assumed, yeah. <laughs> But also, I think, like to some degree, kind of ufology is, even even though there's obviously been uh, sort of thousands of sightings all over the world in different countries and different cultures, it does seem to be quite a almost like an American cultural thing, almost like um, mm, American folklore. Yeah, because yeah. you know, because 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 other countries kind of already have folklore that's a lot older, and it's right. like. It, 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 so it's almost like the US has kind of embraced it and because of that has fed back into it, you know, kind of American yeah, it's culture. A, it's and stuff a feedback like that. loop, sure. Yeah. It's, a, it's like a cybernetic feedback loop that is. And, uh, you know, 
like I could talk a whole lot of shit about my home country, but one thing we're good at is generating some weird cultural shit. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like um, going back to you know the 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 things which you spoke about in the vision that you had as a child, Mickey Mouse. You know, right. and then also um, you had a vision of McDonald's because that that again made me think of like Ronald McDonald and made me think of these kind of. That was my first oh, yeah. it's thought. The same as now, like seeing seeing Elvis in a vision or seeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It does Very come back prominent. to these these kind yeah. of icons, doesn't it? These kind of cultural icons that are. But then I guess it's like Philip K. Dick said, "The uh, what is it? The 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 divine will will be apparent through the uh, the trash stratum, make itself apparent through the trash stratum." And it's like, mm. yeah, c- culturally, sort of, you know. Disney and, and uh, McDonald's are very much that. No, you know? Yeah, and it's so, always in the margins. That's the thing. is like I think the UFO reality exists in the margins. It exists between the lines. Um, and, and it's always going to be marginalia. Like the truth is going to be marginalia. The rest of it is going to be... Um, you know, filling the books and, and, and in the headlines and sensationalized. Um, but, but the real truth is, is going to be hidden in, in footnotes and in between the lines and uh, and handwritten notes on the edges of pages. Yeah. Yeah. um, You could say the truth is out there. It's out there. It's outside. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also, also in here because as I like to say, some, at the end of the day, the real disclosure was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> well, we had to learn yeah. about ourselves in the process. Were you? Uh, um, I obviously we can't see your video. Were you pointing at your head or your heart? Then my heart. Your heart. Yeah, it was my heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I want to bring people's attention to your blog because I really enjoy it. And a lot of the stuff that you put on there is extremely detailed, extremely insightful. And you seem to have a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of these topics. Uh, but there is also this this humor and, and most of all, this weirdness that runs through all of your writing. And I was wondering if you could give our listeners ways in which they can bring more weirdness into their own lives. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, read, read a lot. Um, I feel like at the risk of sounding like an old man yelling at a cloud or of just being too dismissive, uh, of a lot of things. Um, I feel like most people get their content through podcasts or YouTube or whatever, or, you know, like TikTok videos. And if they do read, usually it's like Wikipedia. And to me, that's just kind of saddening. And um, uh, there's so many great books. Like, I wish I had all the books. I all have a great them. number of books, but I, don't, I wish I had all of them, you know, because yeah. I, I every single one. That's a good goal. Yeah. Uh, reading really is. And I mean, it, you, 
you don't need to have a very specific um, goal for it. Like just go into a bookstore and find the weirdest book you can find, you know, or, or um, many of my ideas just come out of having a, a vague interest or in something and, and looking into it way more deeply, you know? So it could just be like, like uh, an actor in a movie that you're watching has kind of a weird life story. So you'd start pulling the thread on that and you end up finding all this other weird stuff attached to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I really loved the, the one again that you did on the sundown climb thing and the Isle of Wight and all that. Oh, stuff. that, yeah. That got way out of hand. That was like something I eventually <laughs> had to write down because, um, now we're coming back to to a thought that got dropped in the first twenty minutes of the show, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> we like it. A callback, yeah. Um, but, but that was something where, like I said, it, it was I, I was not super thrilled about even looking at that case too deeply because I'm like, well, a lot of people already have. I would rather do something more novel. But I kept it kept coming back up since I did that podcast appearance, and then I I thought about it, and I'm like. The only other thing I know about the Isle of Wight is that there was a music festival there. And it's kind of interesting to think of him as, as, as the ghost clown, because uh, a lot of people always associate ghosts with an old abandoned building or some, a place where a battle happened. Like in, in the U S it would be Gettysburg, the Gettysburg battlefields are supposed to be haunted. There's a traumatic event. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't yeah. a joyful like festival type event also generate some kind of entity, right? Um, the, the Isle of Wight festival could have, you know? Um, and as it turns out, the second one that they had there, I think it was the second one, um, was, was more chaotic, you know, it was, it was um, there was a lot of division going on and that's the one that I kind of cover in the, uh, in the blog post and Auckland's like, yeah. playing at the tent stage and all this other stuff. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Members of Pink Floyd were there, but they weren't playing. So then I started working at uh, Black Widow was playing and they were playing their song Come to the Sabbath. So there's all this, um, there, there's there's this kind of confluence of occultism, art, psychedelics, um, ritual, uh, ritual stuff in the form of a festival, you know, and then <coughs> a couple of years later, an entity that, that is vaguely referred to as a ghost, you know, but is, is very distorted and weird and kind of psychedelic in appearance, you know, <laughs> so I'm kind of connecting that Isle of Wight festival to the Sandown clown that was seen on the Isle of Wight, you know, not two years later. So, mm. so I, I mean, I guess what you're saying is like, go down those rabbit holes, you know, if something sparks your imagination, follow it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and what, for, for my part, like I said, I tried to resist that one. I'm like, I don't want to write a blog <laughs> post about Sam Sandown Clowns. I already was on a podcast talking about it. I always want to be doing something completely different from what I did before. Hmm. So it bugs me when I don't get it all out. Cause I try to be as concise, con concise when I write it. Cause I respect people's time and I know they're not going to read my blog post if it's 10 pages long. So <laughs> I try to keep them around 2,000 to 3,000 words. And um, sometimes I don't get to everything I want to do, which is why, you know, like when I wrote the blog post about credibility in ufology, I later had to do a follow-up with the spooky side of disclosure and use like Houdini in the 20s as an example of, 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 uh, of how to look at 
at like congressional hearings around UFOs because he had one about ghosts in the twenties. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I always want to do a complete one eighty and go in a different direction. And you know, you know like like I I don't never want to talk about the same thing over and over. Um, if I cover what UFOs on the blog, then I want to turn around and do something completely different the next time. Um, doesn't always work out that way, but. Uh, I, I think there is a three line on my blog and, and, and what that is, is harder to define, but it's really just, um, humor is definitely a big through line in the, in, in the blog. Yeah. And I try to be funny and I'm glad when it comes off, it's funny to people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it does. Yeah. yeah. I think that's mostly yeah. down to influences that I've had in reading and, uh, um, I think a lot of authors are funnier than people give them credit for and they don't realize they're being yeah. funny. Like, uh, like I can read into humor in authors that most people find pretty dry. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I, I think the overall through line is that there's so many ways to look at the mysteries. Yeah. I mean, one thing I get from your blog is the, um, the weirdness in mundanity you know, which I really, really enjoy, you know, because I read one recently that you did. It was a slightly older article, but it, it was um, on, only recently on your blog about Valentine's Day and the sort of uh, like strange history of that. And then you'd also done one about sitcoms yeah, and that sort of thing. You know, these things that are just in the fabric of everyday life, but you're examining it through a slightly weirder lens. And for me, that's exactly the kind of thing I enjoy. Yeah, because... um it, it has to do with perception and the narratives that we uh, we use in our day to day lives. What we find useful as a point of reference, and, and and I mean this just keeps amplifying how we started the conversation too with Mickey Mouse or with mascots for a brand or with the with a franchise fast food restaurant. Um, uh, there's little bits of it. I think any creative function is going to bring out some primordial truth it's going to be part of a thread that's going to and I, it doesn't matter how surface level it is like a sitcom is i think generally considered on the lower end of 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 the low highbrow equation you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah it's the yeah. chuck again isn't it right yeah and, apart from fraser sure but that doesn't mean that we discard the highbrow stuff entirely either you know so um because because there is a similar source that they're both springing from you know they go in different directions so um uh uh yeah i mean it, it's useful to uh well uh, okay here's an example of what you're describing finding a weird angle to something very mundane like a tv show um pick any word just find a word i'll looking around the room right now, I got octopus. Find a word like octopus. Just keep saying that over and over again. Eventually that word will start to seem alien to you. And then you'll say, well, that can't possibly be right. Like that doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like yeah. the right word anymore. Or even just the spelling of it. You're like, is it spelled that way? It can't possibly be spelled that way. Because the repetition is going to make it all of a sudden, when you're focusing on it, you're like, that's a very strange word. Like that can't be right, you know? And um, I think that's useful to apply to reality, like even just aphorisms you use. 
just a, 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 a collo- colloquial phrase you throw out thinking about, well, where did that come from? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I watched, I watched a movie the other night, uh, the house of Frankenstein. It's one of the later universal monster movies that still had, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. In it and John Carradine and stuff. And, um, not a great movie. It was, it was kind of fun, but not great. And, Listed among the monsters in the movie is Hunchback. It says, <laughs> and somebody questioned it on Twitter, like, "Well, since when is the Hunchback one of the monsters? Like, he didn't have his own movie." So then I'm thinking about like Igor in the other movies, and it was played by Bela Lugosi, and he was never actually the lab assistant like he's always portrayed now. He's like, but he wasn't even technically a Hunchback. He he actually was a hung and it broke his neck and that's why he was all deformed like that. And then I'm like, well, I mean, then there's the hunchback of Notre Dame, I guess would be the original hunchback. So then my mind starts thinking like, when's the hunchback? (laughs) When's team hunchback? (laughs) And I'm like, oh no, this is going to end up in a blog post, isn't it? I'm going to have to do some in-depth study on hunchbacks and make sure what I'm saying isn't horribly offensive to people that actually have some kind of spinal disability. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that approach. I, I really do because it, it is part of that process, I think, of starting to question all the things around you. And I think that in doing so, you do bring yourself to view your everyday reality from a different perspective. Sure. And you challenge your assumptions about things. You yeah. Know, and that's the biggest Yeah, part. exactly. Yeah. That's what I was saying about the disclosurists. It's all. Um, they're starting with the conclusion, aren't they? Yes. Uh, rather than yeah. doing the work. And I guess right. that kind of approach also must make life a bit more entertaining as well. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very rarely bored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it just, Fantastic. you know, I drink about a gallon of coffee a day and I uh, may probably analyze everything that comes into my ears and eyes more than I should. But, uh, <laughs> But I'm not bored. (laughs) God forbid. (laughs) I can relate. So we usually ask people who come on our show um, for recommendations of you know, books, movies, documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, YouTube channels, anything that you think might be relevant to what we've talked about today or just stuff that you enjoy. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I recommend a uh, steady diet of, of old cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Looney Tunes and old comedy and stuff like that for sure. But also um, I think surrealism gets slept on a lot. If you look into early surrealist works, I think that helps with like the dream logic and cartoon logic sort of thing I'm talking about and interpreting reality because surrealists were really kind of doing the same kind of intuitive uh, symbol you know, lateral thinking that I'm talking about. And so like, if you find an old film like Un Chandelou, the 
mm-hmm. like Dali did with Bunyal. Um, disturbing though it may be, con- you know, trigger warning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, it kicks off pretty that. pretty hard. Yeah. That one, uh, it goes pretty hard from the beginning. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think surrealism is is really uh, uh, good to look into. But moreover, more to the point. Um, branch out from the weird, you know. The, so it, it's, um, you know, reading art history a bit, or re- reading uh, epic poetry, or yeah, you know, uh, Victorian literature, or <laughs> or pulp comics yeah. from the '30s. You know, like you're going to invariably keep coming back to to um, find weird weird shit. There's no shortage of weird shit. And every path leads you there eventually if, 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 if you're on that, on that track. So, um, so branching out, enjoying and enjoy what you enjoy and do it unapologetically. You know, life's too short to like try to pretend to be cool. And, and <laughs> yeah, like, that's definitely something like, I've learned. I, mean, I don't like those Marvel movies. Marvel's <laughs> ruining. Yeah. Okay, man. I enjoy the Marvel movies. I like watching superheroes fly around and shit blow up. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt. You know, it's just like yeah, <laughs> love Iron Maiden. Yeah, exactly. Uh, AP, where can people find your work? Oh, uh, APStrange.com is the website, and um, it's it's a blog, but it's got a lot of stuff up there. Uh, I think the most recent one right now. Well. Who knows by the time this is out we're time traveling again so uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah you can see weird valentine's day the sam the sandown clown spooky disclosure uh bugs bunny ufo connection the numerology of elvis uh magic and the Loch Ness monster there's all kinds of stuff on there so um yeah and people, uh, you've got a Twitter account, haven't you, which I enjoy. Yeah, that's where I'm most active, unfortunately, because it's kind of accessible these days. Um, it's gotten rather musky in recent years. Uh, <laughs> it's gotten yeah, rather yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, that's, I, I don't know, it's like a tweet to me is still the, the best way to get something out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it works for me. Like the other social medias don't, they don't, yeah. for whatever reason, I can't, I can't get into it. Um, beyond that, the Holy Donut Revival Hour is on YouTube. Uh, follow that show. I think we're just like at Donut Revival on there and on the social medias. So um, you can tune into that and see myself and my bestie SJ talking all kinds of weird nonsense. Perfect. I, I can recommend that yeah. as well. And if listeners want more Vase, you can find us on Twitter and we also have an Instagram and they're both at Vase, then Vase spelled backwards. So that's at V-A-Y-S-E-E-S-Y-A-V. Our website is www.vase.co.uk that has all our episodes, but you can get us across most podcast platforms, but it's only the website that has the full show notes. So if you're interested in the show notes and find all the links, go to our website uh, you can email us if you have any weird experiences that you'd like to share with us at vaseinfo at gmail.com. We can get the whole soundtrack to the podcast at Bandcamp, and that's done by our very own Stephen James Buckley. And there's a link for that on our website. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so. We have a Ko-Fi. And if you give us a regular donation, you can join our Discord, uh, which is a great place. And there's lots our going Discord on there. Discord rocks. It's, there's some it. there's some great people on there and uh, 
some good fun discussion and we've got we've been making some tentative plans for um for some other things we might be doing with people kind of on the discord and stuff like that so um it is it is worth worth getting involved with it um i think so anyway i'm kind of biased but i think yeah, so too yeah it's good um so before you go ap i actually have a, a story to tell you it's a okay. story i think you might like it it's uh, a story that my wife found last night and uh i thought oh this needs to be on this needs to be on the episode so it's the it's a true story it's the, the the hanging of the Hartlepool monkey. So Hartlepool is a place in the northwest of England, not too far from us, maybe like, what, an hour, hour and a half drive away. So legend has it that during the Napoleonic Wars of the early 19th century, a shipwrecked monkey was hanged by the people of Hartlepool, believing him to be a French spy. To this day, people from Hartlepool are affectionately known as monkey hangers. A French ship was spotted floundering and sinking off the Hartlepool coast. Suspicious of enemy ships and nervous of possible invasion, the good folk of Hartlepool rushed down to the beach where amongst the wreckage of the ship they found the only survivor, the ship's monkey, which was apparently dressed in a miniature military-style uniform. Hartlepool is a long way from France and most of the populace had never met or even seen a Frenchman. Um, Some satirical cartoons of the time pictured the French as monkey-like creatures with tails and claws so perhaps the locals could be forgiven for deciding that the monkey in its uniform must be a Frenchman and was a French spy at that. (laughs) There was a trial to ascertain whether the monkey was guilty of spying or not. However, not unsurprisingly, the monkey was unable to answer any of the court's questions and was found guilty. The townsfolk then dragged him into the town square and hanged him. I mean, that's awful. That's a terrible ending for for that poor monkey. Yeah. Um, What do you think of that, AP Strange? I think I've heard that story before. Have actually, uh, yeah. I am. I'm curious if uh, that monkey is now haunting the area. Yeah, that would, I mean, ghost, ghost so, monkey, that pinged ghost monkey. Well, going back to our original conversation about uh, Mickey Mouse, You're right. the the monster munch creatures, the uh, the local football team have their uh, their mascot is a monkey, and wow. he's, and he's called Hangus. Hangus. Hangus, yeah. So, um, so they didn't give him a French name. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Pierre or something. Well, you know, there is precedent for like, um, I think there's like a phantom monkey on a bridge somewhere in the UK as well. Is there? Uh, a phantom oh, wow. ape. Yeah, I, I, I think I've listened to a podcast about that. Yeah, uh, apparently jumped out and attacked a carriage like in uh, the early 20th century. Um and then there's the Phantom Chicken of of Highgate. Uh, Je- Jeff the Mongoose? Well, Jeff the Mongoose is one of my all-time favorites, yeah. yeah but same. he's a different story entirely. There's no one quite like Jeff. No. Uh, just no, a, a ghostly like animal to me, just a regular ghostly animal, like a headless chicken running around is is uh, pretty good. <laughs> Are you familiar with the chicken ghost? I don't think so. It was supposed to be the chicken that Sir Francis Bacon killed to right, prove okay. that you could refrigerate food. He <laughs> okay. stopped the carriage and plucked it and packed the body into the snow to prove that cold will preserve food. And then um, he ended up dying not that long after from, I think, a combination oh. of pneumonia and salmonella. Salmonella, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the chicken itself is said to haunt the area to this day. I think there were a rash of sightings in the 70s. 
I love that the chicken gets a ghost, but Francis Bacon doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>